The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. One of the things I love about this position as an associate pastor is I get to uh, help serve our senior pastor, serve Dan, specifically on weeks like Christmas when he can have some time away with his family and not have to... uh, to stress about preparing a sermon, two sermons during Christmas time. So it's a privilege to be able to uh, be with you this morning and preaching God's Word with you this morning. We're finishing our series on finding Christ and Christmas. And uh, we're going to be in Luke 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would just invite you on the back tables. You'll find some red Bibles. Please grab one of those. If you don't have one at home, take it, keep it, study it like you saw in that video. There's there's such power that can happen when we we, uh, consume God's Word and see it change our hearts and our minds. So I encourage you to do that. So we're in Luke 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to be finishing up. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Luke, this is the end of what's called his infancy narrative. So it's the end of his description of Jesus as a baby and as a boy. And this is the only account that we have in the Gospels. There's other literature that has some accounts, but this is the only account we have of Jesus as a boy. And so we're going to be spending some time finding Christ in this passage this morning. But first, I just wanted to ask us a question. How many of us, show of hands, have been lost in a store or somewhere as a kid? You remember being, oh, wow. Parents, what are you doing? Okay, so yes. Okay, so keep your hands up, and I'm going to ask you another question, and if this doesn't relate to you, how many of you have been lost on an island as a kid? I'm the only one, huh? I'm the only... Wait a minute, there's one other. Okay, Lori, you and I have been lost on an island. Okay, Mackinac Island, if you can picture it, family vacation. You know, some of you may have been there. We're on a family vacation, just enjoying. It was a beautiful day. We're on a bike ride. There's no cars, just bikes and buggies and horses. There's smells of Mackinac Island fudge. And then I take a wrong turn on the bike. And of course, I'm ahead of my family. I take a wrong turn and I turn around and they're gone. Suddenly, this 3.6 square mile island feels like 360 square miles. That smell of fudge that I had before, now I'm smelling the manure of the horses. Now I'm scared. And after about 30 minutes of just sitting there and waiting till they would pass by, I'm starting to really panic. After about two hours, I'm convinced I'm an orphan. And that sick feeling in my gut was that I would never see my parents again. Their absence was physical. I could feel it. Mackinac Island would now become my home. I'd be this island urchin cleaning up horse manure. And it was about four hours later, standing desperately at the bike rental shop, I saw my mom and dad and I found my way home again as I fell just weeping in their arms. Many of us have felt this sense of loss and being lost. And many of us have felt this absence of our parents or our loved ones. Maybe even you're thinking about now where I'm at today. Some of you had 
absent fathers, and you felt that lost. You felt that missing piece. Some of you at Christmas time are feeling the loss of a parent who recently passed away. You feel it. You miss their presence. Some of you maybe even feel like God is absent in the midst of maybe some pain or suffering that you're going through. Where is he? Well, Luke is writing to those who are feeling Jesus' absence. He's gone. He's not physically here anymore. And they're feeling that. And he's writing to them to say, hey, I want to give you some assurance and some certainty. He's not gone. Today's passage, as we read it in Luke 2, offers us, like my parents' arms did, a way home. Luke ends his infancy narrative with a story that could easily be titled, Find Jesus and You'll Find Your Way Home. Let's read together Luke 2, 41 to 52. Now his, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning... To Nazareth, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, and as we think about Christmas, we want to find Jesus. Some of us today have lost him, have lost sight of him. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us once again reclaim him to find him and see him as our own. Would you use this passage and your word to minister to us this morning? I pray this in his name. Amen. So what I want us to think about as we're looking at this passage is I want, I want us, if we can, to try to imagine us being Mary or Joseph. Okay? We are on a desperate search to find Jesus. And as we search for a lost Jesus, what are we going to see when we finally come upon him? Some of the things that we're going to see are going to confuse us. Some of the things that we're going to see, hopefully, will comfort us. But when we find Jesus, 
we will find our way home. There's three things that we're going to find when we find Jesus. The first thing we're going to find is we're going to find Jesus going beyond the law and the customs. Second thing we're going to find is we're going to find Jesus at home with his father. And the third thing that we're going to find is Jesus maturing, growing up as a son. So first, Jesus is going beyond the law and the customs. We're going to see this in this passage. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of the law and the customs according to Mary and Joseph? Well, for them, being of Jewish lineage, the purpose of the law and the customs was really to provide them with a sense of protection from, from God and with God. Here they are heading to the feast of the Passover, And this passage tells us that they've gone every year to the feast of the Passover. This is their requirement of the law. If they live far away to travel to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And so they've been faithfully doing this. And the feast of the Passover was intended to remember God's deliverance of his people Israel from slavery, from bondage. And so they're going every year and they're traveling 90 miles. That's like the distance from here to Milwaukee on foot. Every year, they're traveling faithfully, and they're experiencing this protection. We are God's people. We remember that we are protected as God's people. And not only did they go to the feast, they only needed to stay for two days, but the passage tells us they stayed for the whole week. These are dedicated, faithful people keeping God's law and remembering the protection that they have under it. There's also some customs that we see in this passage that are going on. It says that Jesus is 12 years old. And a 12-year-old would be going through this process, going toward his bar mitzvah. And what a bar mitzvah was, is basically, it's literally translated as being a son of the commandment or a son of the law. And so they're taking Jesus to Jerusalem to get his temps. It's the only way I can think of it to describe it to you. It's like getting his temps. Because once he turns 13, all of the religious responsibility and duty is going to be transferred to him. He's going to have control of himself and the religious vehicle. So he's going to Jerusalem to get his temps. And so they're thinking this is offering him that same protection that we have under the law. And the last thing that we see is not just not just uh, some of the law and the customs, we see a cultural thing that we might not understand when we read this passage. At first, when we read this passage, we might want to blame Mary and Joseph. Like, what's your deal? You lost track of your son for like 20 miles? You hadn't found him? We have to understand that in their culture, there is this takes a village mentality. That when they travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem, they travel in these caravans. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are moving along the road together because there's safety in numbers. So there's safety from, there's pirates along these roads that are going to come and beat you up and take your stuff. There's wild beasts. We don't don't quite understand. There's animals, there's coyotes, there's, there's animals that could come and devour you. There's safety in numbers. And there's also food and water that you're going to need. And there's safety in numbers. So there's this village mentality. So that's the culture that they're finding the protection in. The only equivalent I could think of offhand was like our gym at church on Sunday morning. We put our kids in the gym and we just assume all of our kids, we're all taking care of each other's kids. 
When Cadence gets hurt, someone's going to come up to me, hey, Cadence got hurt. We're going to take care of each other. And that's what the, the custom that they're finding protection in. So that's where we see Mary and Joseph. But where do we see Jesus in this passage? What's the purpose of the law and the customs for him? Well, it's not just protection. It's actually God's presence is what he's looking for. You see in verse 46 that Jesus is sitting among the teachers. He's sitting among the wise ones, learning more about the law, soaking it in, asking lots of questions and listening to their answers. He's staying longer than usual. He's staying longer than the requirement, asking questions to the teachers, to the wise ones. And he's not doing it by himself. He's not doing it in isolation. There's this openness he has to learning. What's going on here? What is this law teaching us? Because if you think about it, Jesus is actually beginning to prepare for ministry. And what better way to prepare for ministry than to learn from someone and learn from these wise ones of the law? An adage that a friend of mine said that I just think is really, really helpful. If you're not willing to learn from someone, guess what? They're not going to learn from you. So Jesus is learning and soaking this up, learning the law, but not just for the law's sake, not so that he knows a bunch of information. He's learning the law because he knows that the law points somewhere beyond the law. It points to a lawgiver, God himself. And verse 52 shows us that, Jesus increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. When we think of wisdom, what do we think of? Just doing the right thing, knowing the right thing to do? That's not necessarily how the Bible defines wisdom. John Calvin has a great quote about wisdom. And it's this, true wisdom consists of a knowledge of God and a knowledge of self. That's where you'll find true wisdom. And Jesus is beginning his wisdom journey with the fear of the Lord, knowing who God is. Knowing, knowing, wanting to know more. But it doesn't end there. There's got to be knowing and then understanding. Understanding is the fruit of wisdom. Not only knowing who God is, but doing who God is. That's how I think of wisdom, knowing who God is and then doing who God is. That's understanding. And you see the teachers of the law are going, whoa, this kid's full of some understanding. Like he gets it. He gets how to apply this stuff to real life. They're amazed at his understanding. Not only does he have the wisdom, he's got the understanding. Job 28.28 gives us a little bit of a picture of that definition of wisdom and understanding. And it says this, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that's understanding. Knowing who God is and doing who God is. And they were astonished at his understanding. Jesus is actively seeking out the presence of his Father. He's listening for his Father. And that's when we think about theology, God learning, knowing about God. It's got to go beyond information, law, or custom. 
A strong theology has to lead to wisdom, which has to lead to understanding, knowing, and doing. Luke is highlighting Jesus' being fully human here. If he's fully human, we have to assume he had to learn some things. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to use the potty. No doubt, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. But in his humanity, he needed to learn more about who that God was and who the Father was. And he does this by developing a strong theology, gaining wisdom, and living in light of that wisdom through understanding. His parents were finding safety in the law and the customs. And guess what happens? They lose Jesus. Jesus was finding much, much more by pursuing his father. You can, you can see the same phenomenon going on in marriage. Um, ah, these confessions, actually, this is not an incriminating story, Bliss, so I think we're okay. So, so you see this going on. So Bliss and I have been married for 11 and a half years. And with 11 and a half years, you gain more familiarity, more safety, more customs to how you do things, Right? And one of the things you gain is like there becomes these customs or these rituals to our communication. So uh, familiarity has been bred and now there's these customs to our communication. Like in the morning, I'll be brushing my teeth and every morning I will, how'd you sleep last night? I'm pretty good. And then I'll get home from work. How was your day? Pretty good. How'd the kids do for you? Pretty good. And then we'll get to bed at night. Did you lock the front door? Yep, got the front door. Did you turn the kids' lights off? Yep, got the kids' lights. You start developing these customs And I start to assume I know how Bliss is going to respond to my questions and my thoughts. I know how she's going to respond. So I stop listening, and her voice starts sounding like the teacher in Charlie Brown. But my wife has this ingenious way of jolting me beyond the customs of our communication. If she notices that I'm sitting in my distraction, that I'm looking at my phone, that I'm reading something or I'm lost in a thought, she'll jolt me. She'll insert these wild, ridiculous statements to what she's saying. And then, and then Chad, my, I was in the restaurant and my head just exploded. Or Chad, I, you know, and I took all our savings and I spent it on toenail polish. Or I'm just waiting for you to passionately kiss me, Chad. And I'll just jolt out of my customary nodding and smiling and look at her like, what what did you just say? And I begin to once again see my wife and love my wife by listening and attending to her with more questions. That's wisdom. And then I start responding to her differently by loving her better, by responding with action. Wisdom and understanding happens. And there's two questions, I think, for us in this passage. What traditions or customs might be keeping you from understanding or responding to God or the people around you? We just had a Christmas holiday. That might have revealed it. Do you find yourself kind of going through the motions with conversations? How's school going? Pretty good. How's work going? Pretty good. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. Or do you get so consumed with the pattern of gift-giving or decorations or preparing a meal that you've just found yourself 
completely losing sight of the gift of Jesus and the giver, the Father. God asks us to go beyond our laws and our customs. What about in your marriage? How might you go beyond the laws or the customs? For those of you who are stuck in ritual and routine, please go out to a restaurant you've never been to before. Or go on a date night if you don't do that. And you could take the risk. It's a risky one. But ask your spouse how you're doing in studying them and gaining that wisdom and understanding. Ask your spouse if you want to. How am I doing at studying you and knowing more about you? But what about in your walk with the Lord? I do Bible study. I go to church. Check, check. Is it lost sort of its meaning? Has it become more ritual, routine? Maybe it's time to be a little bit more creative in your studying the Bible. Maybe it's time to ask questions of the text. What is this saying about who you are, God? What is this saying about who I am? What is this saying about who Jesus is? Ask those questions of any text in the Bible. And I, I, I bet you God will, God will give you some understanding and some insight. Maybe it's about your prayer life, just spending more time listening and not just going seven days and I'm out. Listening. What do you have to say to me today, Lord? I'm listening. Or even this morning, coming to worship with expectation. What do you have to say to me today? I'm expecting that you're going to speak. How many of us have been in our traditions or our theologies or our routines so long that we think we already know all the answers? I'll just give you some diagnostic questions to those of you who might be in that camp. I'm one of them. Do you always have the right answer or challenge in your mind before someone's even finished talking? How many questions do you ask that you don't know the answer to? Do you not need to listen to me today because you know what I'm already going to say before I say it? Warthog, stucco. I bet you didn't expect that. You, just, you weren't expecting that. But Jesus is sitting at the teacher's feet. It's an invitation for us to come before our Father's presence, before his word, even in corporate worship and say, I'm listening. I'm listening. What do you have to say? As we search for a lost Jesus, not only do we see Jesus going beyond the law and the customs and gaining wisdom and understanding, we find Jesus at home with his Father. Let's look at how Jesus' parents and Jesus respond to his being found. Okay, so this is a stressful situation for the parents. And notice how they respond in verse 48 when they find him in the temple. They are astonished, shocked. Their expectations to find their son were probably going to be like my parents' expectations of finding me at the bike rental. Scared, finding me scared, finding me panicked, finding me tearful. Mom, mom, dad, where were you? And how do they find him? Completely at ease, sitting among the teachers. Nothing makes a parent more frustrated or angry than a child who doesn't understand the seriousness of their actions, right? And moms... You moms out there know the two best cards to play to invoke a response from your kids. The guilt card and the dad card. First, the guilt card. Notice what she says in verse 48. She says, 
Why have you treated us so? Anyone who feels loyalty to their parents would feel the sting of this question. It's like the whole, I am so disappointed in you. Oh. And then she plays the second one, the dad card. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She makes sure to reference dad before herself in order to stress the power of his position. It's much like, wait till your dad gets home. She plays the two cards. And how does Jesus respond? To any normal kid, playing both of these cards at the same time is like the triple dog dare of the playground. It really is. If we're guilty, we'd probably just cave. You're right. I'm so sorry. But Jesus doesn't. He respectfully and truthfully responds to both of mom's cards. First, the guilt card. Look what he says in verse 49. Why, why were you looking for me? Jesus is surprised at his mother's question. It's like he's saying, I, I didn't know I was lost. Why is he surprised? Because he hasn't gone anywhere. Most of their time in Jerusalem was probably spent at the temple with all of these people. And here he is at the temple with all of these people. And that question that he asks Mary is actually kind of self-incriminating to her. We do this all the time as a parent. We project our guilt onto them. When she said, what have you done this to us? She's actually saying, why have we done this to you? They lost Jesus. He didn't lose himself. They lost him. And second, he responds to the dad card. She says, your father and I have been worried sick about you. And Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Luke has such intentionality in how he wrote this dialogue. As Jesus is reaching his age of maturity as a son of the commandment, he respectfully corrects both his parents. He says, Mary, Joseph, I'm home. While you've been looking for me, I've been with my father all along. I'm right where I'm supposed to be doing the work of my father. And his parents' response in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. If I could paraphrase that verse into one word, it would just be, huh? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why was this so confusing to them? Well, of the 622,000 words in the Old Testament, only 15 of them refer to God directly as a father. The thought of God as father was so distant and foreign to them, particularly in this personal of terms. So Jesus, to refer to God as his father, was making a bold and direct claim. He's saying, I'm his son not yours. Jesus' first words in the gospel of Luke were in essence, I am God's son. Of those 15 references I talked about in the Old Testament about father, some of them were specific references to the Messiah or the king. And one in particular is given to David by the Lord. David wants to build a house for God. David wants to build a temple. He's eager. I'm a king now. I want, to, I want to take charge of this. I want to make sure God has a proper home. 
And the Lord responds to him in 1 Chronicles 17 with this. And pay attention to the relational language in this. He says to David, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Here in the temple, as Mary and Joseph come upon Jesus, he's saying to his parents, and Luke is saying to his readers, this is the promised one, God's son. Why is Jesus in the temple? Why is that significant? Because the temple is the place where relationship between God and man happens. It's where God communicates to his people his word, and it's where his people respond to him with worship. And that moment in the temple when he says, I'm doing my father's business, was a transition in the New Testament of people's understanding of the temple. Relationship with God and man was no longer going to happen in a place. It was going to happen through a person. Finding Jesus means finding access to your father and to your home. Jesus' response to his mom is, look no further, mom. You found your home in me. I'm God's son. She doesn't understand now, but she will. And Luke gives us a little hint on that in verse 51 when he says his mother treasured all these things in her heart. But we'll talk about that in just a sec. How many of us right now are looking for a home, are looking, longing for a resting place? Keith Miller tells the tragic story of a woman, an orphan, who was always longing to find her home. She says this, when I was a tiny little girl, My parents died, and I was put in an orphanage. I was not pretty at all, and no one seemed to want me, but I longed to be adopted and loved by a family as far back as I can remember. I thought about it day and night, but everything I did seemed to go wrong. I must have tried too hard to please the people who came to look me over, and what I did was just drive them away. One day, the head of the orphanage told me that a family was coming to take me home with them. I was so excited that I jumped up and down and cried like a little baby. And the head of the orphanage reminded me, I'm on probation and this might not be a permanent arrangement, but I just knew it's going to work out. So I went with the family, started school. I was the happiest little girl you can imagine. And life began to open up for me just a little. Then one day, a few months later, I was skipping home from school and ran into the front door of the big old house we lived in and no one was home. But in the middle of the front hall was my battered suitcase with my little coat thrown across it. As I stood there, it suddenly dawned on me what it meant. I don't belong here anymore. There are many of us here who are longing to be adopted, longing to be loved, longing to belong. There are many of us here who have put on a good show trying to impress people or impress God so that they'll love us. 
There are many of us here who have had our suitcases left in the front hall, and people have said to us, I'm done with you. Some of us may believe even that God does the same with us when we screw up in sin. In his wrath, we hear God say, I'm done, Chad. I've had it. Get out. But Jesus, at home in the temple, says to every lost one of us, come home and stay home. Jesus was the only one to claim sonship of the Father because he was born of the Father. But we can claim sonship because Jesus was all about the Father's business and he was in the business of adoption to make a home for us, a kingdom. The intersection between God and man became a person, Jesus. He was the perfect son that we couldn't be so he could make the father happy with us. And in love, he took the father's appropriate anger and wrath over our rejecting him. And Jesus himself was rejected, kicked out, temple destroyed. And after three days of confusion and agony over his death, he came alive again and says to us, the temple, it's been restored Your home has been restored. Instead of traveling to the temple of Jerusalem, find your home in the temple of Jesus. Trade in your rags and your bags of your sin and trade it in for his robes of perfection. Come home to your adopted father in the house built by his son. He'll never leave you. He'll never reject you if you come through Jesus. This is why we end every prayer in Jesus' name. This is why the Gospels alone include over 160 references to God as Father. Everything we do now is because of our adoption through Christ. J.I. Packer asked the simple yet provocative question, what is a Christian? What makes Christianity and a Christian unique and different from every other religion? And he says this, a Christian is one who has God as father. That's it. Because we've been adopted through his son, Jesus. So not only do we see Jesus going beyond the law and the customs, at home with his father in the temple, we find Jesus maturing as a son. Luke doesn't end his account there. He could. But in verse 51, he mentions that Jesus went down with them and was submissive to them, and Mary treasured up these things in her heart. As Luke finishes the infancy narrative, he does something really remarkable. He cites his source. Mary herself, she probably told Luke this story of the temple. And Mary marveled because she got to see the whole story play out. Mary had to think to herself, this is the creator of all the universe, and he submitted himself to me and Joseph as his parents? What? What in the world? Wow. More than that. She saw him submit himself to his father as she witnessed his execution. A mom witnessing her son 
hung on a tree. She watched him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. She watched that. She watched her son mature. When we think maturity, we think independence. When you become more mature, you leave the house. You become your own person. You're independent. But as Mary watched Jesus mature, guess what she saw? She saw him becoming more dependent on his father day, day, day after day. She heard him say things like, thy will be done. She heard him say, when you see me, you will see my father. And she saw him say, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Adopted children of the father, is that us? As we mature as believers, are we becoming more dependent on our father or more independent of our father? Andy Stanley has a few insights. Apparently, he gets lost a lot, and he has a couple insights about what it means to get lost. And he has three things that he said he's learned from being lost. First is, we don't get lost on purpose. Nobody, nobody goes, Mary and Joseph didn't go and say, okay, today we're going we're gonna to lose Jesus. Nobody gets lost on purpose. Second thing he says is we can't tell when we're lost. It's not like this dividing point, like I'm found and now I'm lost. It's a gradual thing that happens the more we find our way away from home. But the third thing, and probably the most important thing I think to mention is, he says the road we're on will determine where we end up. The road we're on will determine where we end up. And so I ask us, which road are you on? Are you on the road of submission to your father? Or are you on the road of independence? It will determine where you end up. You may have all these really, really good expectations and intentions, like someday I'll get over to that road. And I have the Bible. It sort of tells me a little bit about that road of submission. I'll get there someday. The road we're on determines where we'll end up. Intentions don't even matter. What road are you on? If you're lost, when will you realize you're far away from home? The road of submission to the Father through the Son. It's our only way home. Which road are you on? Final conclusion. Uh, Madeline Lengel wrote a book called The Severed Wasp. And it's based on a story that she heard from... uh, George Orwell, the guy who wrote uh, 1984 and Animal Farm, George Orwell. And this is the experience George Orwell wrote about the severed wasp. It's a little, it's a little graphic, so I hope it doesn't upset too many. I thought of a rather cruel trick I once played on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate, and I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. It was only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It's the same with modern man. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. And there's a period, 20, 30, 40 years perhaps, where he did not notice it. We are severed from God because of our sin, just like that wasp. And when we die, we can't fly back to God. 
So we have to search for a fix, for a repair. And it's there that we find Jesus, God's only son, putting us back together after our sin has separated us in order that we might be given Christ's resurrection wings to fly to our permanent home with our Father. Lost children, find Jesus and you'll find your way home to the Father's arms. And adopted children of God, let's be about our Father's business by pointing everyone we love to our home in Jesus Christ. Find Jesus and you'll find your way home. Let's pray. Father, all of us long to be home. Some of us may be traveling now and we're not home. And we feel like we don't belong or we feel like we're not where we're supposed to be. Some of us spiritually might be there. We go back to our sin, same patterns, the same customs. Why? Father, it's because we're becoming independent of you. We're forgetting our need for Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would help us through this passage to come home to our Father through Christ. That you would grant us wisdom and understanding to see that Jesus is our only home and it's an eternal home. And help us in the rest of our lives to follow the path of submission to our Father to do your will. Thy will be done, not my will be done. Do that work in our hearts that we might be about our Father's business in pointing people to our brother, our perfect brother, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.